Welcome to a very special edition of Five Things This Week in Social. Normally, on this show, we talk about five things happening on social media. But today, we have prepared a very special edition in both English and for the first time ever in Spanish. During this episode, we will acknowledge and celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month by sharing stories of Hispanic women and men that made a big impact in history and society. So, if you're a marketer, an advertiser, or a creator who is excited to learn more about Hispanic heritage, then this is the podcast for you. Joining me in the pod today, we have two amazing panelists, the super talented senior art director, Danae Nunez, and her equally amazing and talented creative partner, senior copywriter, Cesar Rock. Hello, Danae. Hello, hello. Danae, tell us a bit about yourself and what is that meal that tastes like home? So, as you said, I'm a senior art director here at Gray New York, and I'm originally from Mexico, Mexico City to be precise, and definitely the taco, the most delicious and most versatile food on earth. Yum. Thank you, Danae. And hello, Cesar. Hello. Cesar, tell us a bit about yourself and what is that meal that tastes like home? So, my name is Cesar or Cesar, not anything in between. I'll disclaimer, I'm not a Brit, although I know it might sound like one at times. I'm from Madrid. Spain. I'm a senior writer at Great New York. For the recipe or for the meal, I'm going to go with cocido, which is a regional recipe from Madrid we normally eat on Sundays with our families. Great. Now it's my turn to introduce myself. My name is Margarita Castro. I am a project manager here at Great New York. I was born and raised in Colombia, and I am honored to be your host for this episode. A meal, or more like a treat, that tastes like home for me is buñuelos with chocolate. Buñuelos are these delicious fried cheese puffs that are especially popular in Colombia around Christmas time. Today, we're going to talk about five Hispanic individuals who contributed to culture and society in different ways. First up, Danae is going to talk about Gabriel García Márquez. Then Cesar is going to share Miguel Hernández's story. Coming up third, I will be talking about the rebellious Mirabal sisters. Cesar will be talking about our fourth person, baseball icon Roberto Clemente. And finally, Danae will talk about the fifth person, cinematographer Guillermo del Toro. But before we get into it, I'd love to start this conversation by establishing the difference between Hispanic and Latino. These terms are often used interchangeably, but they mean different things. So what is the difference between Hispanic and Latino? The term Hispanic is used to describe a person who is from or has ancestors from a Spanish-speaking country. So under most circumstances, any individual who was raised with Spanish as their first language can be usually defined as Hispanic. On the other hand, the term Latino is a geographic term. It refers to a person from Latin America or of Latin America descent. In this sense, the term Hispanic includes Spain, but excludes Brazil, and Latino includes Brazil, but excludes Spain. Now that we've grounded this set difference, let's get into it. Danae, tell us about Gabriel García Márquez. Cool. Let's help I do it as well as you did, Margarita. So I'm sharing the story of Gabriel García Márquez, and we know him, of course, as one of the greatest writers of the 10th century. But he was born in 1927 in Aracataca, Colombia, and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1982, becoming the fourth Latin American to be honored. Of course, he's known mostly for his masterpiece, Cien Años de Soledad, or 100 Years of Solitude, written in 1967. But he's had a ton of hits, so you could say, before and after. Cien Años de Soledad tells the story of Macondo, which is an isolated town whose whole history is kind of like a microcosm of the history of Latin America. 
just on a reduced scale. And while the setting's super realistic, there's fantastic episodes on what has come to be known as magical realism. That's the mixing of historical facts and stories with instances of the fantastic. Think of an example of Encanto, the Disney movie that came out recently. It has that magical realism with the little casita that has magic in there but feels real. He became super famous for magical realism and became almost like the figurehead. But fun fact, didn't actually invent it. He learned it from Cuban writer Alejo Carpentier, who's considered to be the father of magical realism. This is great. So let me ask you, why is he important for you? So I'm not a writer, but most creatives are storytellers and you just can't deny the kind of storyteller that Gabriel Garcia Marquez was. He captivated audiences and telling stories that proved to be timeless. What I also like about him is his involvement and his voice and of his political opinions. So he couldn't just sit idly by with everything that was going on in Colombia. So he was very involved in the politics of it. He was heavily influenced by the period between 1940s and 50s in Colombia. That's known as La Violencia, which is a period of civil strife where 300,000 people died and he was very outspoken on his beliefs enough so that it caused a lot of issues with the government and eventually he left Colombia for a while. That's very interesting. So why do you think a modern audience should know about this person? I think he changed the course of literature, especially using magical realism. He influenced a lot of generations after him and not just, you know, Latino writers, but writers, period. A lot of writers take influence from him and he's one of the few Latinos who have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. So he's accomplished not just in one book, but all of his pieces. Last question before we pass the mic to Cesar. What is something you didn't know about this person? There was a lot of stuff I learned doing research for this, but it's super interesting to me that he actually grew to hate 100 years of solitude because he was under the impression that none of his following works would ever hold up to it. Like that was his one time thing and then everything else would be a flop. But that actually didn't happen. All of his 15 books and short stories that came after were super loved by critics, very well received and just as good as his main piece. Amazing. Thank you so much, Danae. Now, Cesar, tell us who is a person you'd like to talk about today? Say so today I'm sharing the story of Miguel Hernandez. Miguel was a 20th century Spanish poet and playwright associated with the generation of 27 and the generation of 35, you know, this very important movement in, in Spanish literature. Born and raised in a family of law resources, he was self-taught in what refers to literature and his struggle actually against an unfavorable environment to build up his intellectual education. Such a father who physically abused him for spending time with books instead of working and who took him out of school as soon as, as he finished his primary education. Hernandez died of tuberculosis imprisoned due to his active participation on the Republican side of the Civil War. His last book, Cancionero y Romancero de Ausencias, was published after his death and is a collection of poems he wrote in prison, some written in rudimentary pieces of toilet paper, others preserved in letters to his wife, and is considered one of the finest pieces of Spanish poetry of the 20th century. The most obvious sign of its impact is the amount of school he named after him in Spain, like every town, every village you go, there's one at least. Take into consideration that he was on the losing side of the Civil War, and that was followed by more than four decades of our dictatorship. Yet all the odds were against him in terms of making history. He's also considered one of the best Spanish poets ever, inspired almost every generation after him in Spain, also was well regarded in his time. So he used his poetry to raise the moral of the Republican troops in times of war. He's such a great writer he was that even though some of his poems were heavily loaded with anti-fascist statements, many important military officials tried to convince the dictator Frank to absolve him. And what impact did he have on you? Huge one. He's my favorite writer, or one of at least top three. And this is like I tend not to idolize people because they all have that background here and I find out and it's like disappointing. But 
it's mainly because for me, it's really hard to separate the artist from the work. But this is one of the few cases where I'm not. Also, the fact that he had to learn on his own, you know, all self-taught, all the odds were against him, and he still made it into the books of history. I, I find that very inspiring. That's cool. And last question, what is something you didn't know about this person? Well, I know I knew a lot of things, you know, about this guy because I've been like studying him in a way for, for a long time. But apparently, one fun fact is that due to his rustic and humble personality, he didn't even dress up for work interviews. He lived in a, in a tiny village in the east coast of Spain, but he often went to, to Madrid, the capital, so he could have like, you know, chat with people and like have interviews for like newspapers or like publishers. On the contrary, he didn't dress up, but he often appeared at these sophisticated venues where like a of old slippers with holes in them even that is the level i strive to be in talent and then also in comfort one day (laughs) (laughs) right mark now it's your turn tell us who do you want to talk about today i'd love to share the story of the mirable sisters the mirable sisters were three sisters from dominican republic that risked their own lives to work in the resistance of rafael trujillo's dictatorship in the late 50s Patria, Minerva, and Maria Teresa helped organize and grow an underground movement that challenged the regime, and by doing so, they were repeatedly threatened and arrested. In November 1960, the three sisters were murdered, and this outraged Dominican Republic opposition. The assassination of the Mirabal sisters was a key trigger for Trujillo's own assassination six months later. The Mirabal sisters are considered heroines in the Dominican Republic, and they are globally recognized as a symbol of social justice and feminism. In 1999, the UN made the date of their death, November 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Well, that is impressive. My first question is, why do you think a modern audience should know about them? The Mirabal sisters became symbols of both democratic and feminist resistance. They fought for what they thought was right, they fought to be heard, and they did all of this at a moment in time where machismo was a rule, especially for Hispanics. Younger generations should know about them because they helped pave the way for many women to stand up and speak up for what they believe. Great. Now let's get more personal. Why are the Mirabal sisters important to you in particular? I actually didn't know about the Mirabal sisters until a few years ago. I came across their story while I was reading a female empowerment book to my daughter, and I was fascinated by their story and at the same time upset. Because I grew up in Latin America, I went to school there and no one ever talked about them. I learned about Jean d'Arc and other female icons, but none were Hispanic. So the moment I found about them, it was like an aha moment for me. <laughs> Is there something you didn't know about them? I didn't know there was a fourth sister. Her name was Adela. She never wanted to be involved in the resistance and died of natural causes in 2014. But after her sister's assassination, she continued their legacy by setting up a foundation and a museum in their name. I also didn't know there was a fictional novel called In the Time of Butterflies that was based on their story. It was published in 94, and seven years later, it was adapted to film. Part of the cast was Selma Hayek and Mark Anthony. Great, thank you. Now, I'd like to talk about Roberto Clemente. He was a Puerto Rican professional baseball player who played 18 seasons in the MLB for the Pittsburgh Pirates, primarily as a right fielder. For those who know about baseball. Cesar, I know you love sports. Tell us why his impact was so important to culture. Well, we can talk about the two ways he did impact the culture. The first one is like the obvious one is as a player. He was a two-time World Series champion. Also the first player from the Caribbean and Latin America to win a World Series as a starting position player in the 1960s to receive an LNL MVP award in the 66. 
to receive a World Series MVP award in 1971. He was like 15 times All-Star, regular season MVP, but then there's even a more important aspect of him. Clemente was involved in charity work in Latin American and Caribbean countries during the off-seasons. He often delivered baseball equipment and food to those in need. And actually, he died on a plane that had fruit and gear he intended to take to Puerto Rico. And what impact did he have on you? Honestly, I didn't know much about him until recently. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but the impact hasn't been like that massive. But he's been in my thoughts for some time now. Because of his title work, I've looked for all examples of players who put their money where their mouth is and fight for the causes that they believe in. Unfortunately, he was one of a kind. Not many others after him have put their effort as he did. Yeah, of course, like many donate huge sums of money, but he did more. He gave his time and put his body on the line. And that is something that is much more valuable, in my opinion. I like to think that he died knowing he did a great job. I think he did. And last question, what is something you didn't know about this person? Two fun facts that stood out for me. The first one is that one of his kids wanted to play baseball professionally too, and he was the youngest Latin American player to buy 3,000 hits in the MLB. A more gimmicky one is that there was initiative to have him canonized by the Catholic Church in Puerto Rico. I didn't know that. I just pictured, you know, the little candles with the saints on the front and him in the front. Totally see it. Thank you. Now I'd like to talk about Guillermo del Toro, because as a Mexican, I have to bring in a Mexican. He was born in Guadalajara, Mexico in 1964, and he's been releasing films since 1993, so even before I was born. Since then, he's developed a very distinctive cinematic style, and he's won three Academy Awards, three BAFTA Awards, and an Emmy, and he's known for his style of monsters. So you've seen a lot of his monster movies and crazy creatures. He mixes a lot of that with comic books and these insane visuals that come from his imagination, and many of his movies showcase his love of outcast, which usually end up being monsters, and they're the ones who are more than what they seem, so thinking Shape of Water. He was on Times Magazine's list of 100 of the most influential people in the world in 2018, and he's a super big influence in a lot of Latino culture. He's also had a big influence in Latino filmmakers. He co-founded the Guadalajara International Film Festival, which kind of catapulted Mexican cinema reputation around the world. And he also consistently promotes work of lesser-known Latino directors and helps fund their artistic dreams with the Jenkins del Toro Scholarship, which he gives out to those emerging Latinos. He's done such a big impact in Mexican culture that he's been recognized by the UNAM, the Autonomous University of Mexico, with an honorary doctorate for his contributions to cinema. That's amazing. So let me ask you, why is he important to you? I'm just super impressed by his creativity. The creativity that this man has and just like the tip of his finger is more than anyone could ever hope to come up with. His imagination is incredible and he's an excellent storyteller. You've seen many of his movies. I'm sure you've seen many of his movies and you're just captivated by the story. He's not just a diversity pick. He's not just a Latino filmmaker. He's an excellent director that just so happens to be Latino. So he's making his name out there as a director and then putting that Mexican and his heritage alongside with him. That's very interesting. Why do you think a modern audience should know about him? I think films and creativity in general are making a name not just in Latino cinema, but go head to head with the top of the top. He's incredibly creative. He never sticks to one style of film. You've seen Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water. Now he recently did Pinocchio, which is stop motion. So there's this huge range of talents and he's with the top directors of his time right now. Last question. What is something you didn't know about him? So I didn't know that his father was kidnapped in 1997 in Guadalajara. So that was when he already had kind of made his debut into filmmaking. And they had to pay twice the amount of the ransom to get him back, which was actually they got the money from his friend James Cameron. Um, but that prompted him and his family to move abroad. 
So that's why right now I think he lives in the U.S. and has houses everywhere. But he feels like this is an involuntary exile from his country. Amazing. Thank you, Danae. Well, that does it for us today. If you don't already, be sure to follow this podcast, share it, review it, like it, or write to us with your questions, comments, or concerns to podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our panel today, Danae and Cesar, executive producer, Joey Scarillo, producer, Samantha Geller, our editor, Amanda Fuentes, the crew at Gramercy Park Studios, and a special thank you to Alvaro Soto. If you like this episode and you know someone who might enjoy listening to the Spanish version, you can find the Spanish episode in the same feed. That's it for today. It's been a true pleasure. Joey and the team will be back next week with five more things. Until then, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.